Liz Sumner, and this is I Always Wanted To, the podcast where I interview people who are doing things that others long to do. What have you always wanted to try? Hi, everyone. Before we get started, I just want to give a quick welcome to new listeners and followers. I'm really glad you're here, and I want to get to know you better. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at lizatlizsumner.com or message me on Facebook or Instagram. If you have time for a five-question survey, I'd really appreciate your answers. You can find it at lizsumner.com survey. And if you like what you hear, please share it with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And if you're really a fan, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash alwayswanted. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the interview. My guest today is Lindsay Gabbard. Lindsay is an American who came to Rome five years ago to study wine and never left. She's now part owner and co-founder of the Rosholi Wine Club. Welcome, Lindsay. Ciao, Liz. Great to see you. First of all, tell me, what is a sommelier? Well, do you want the Merriam-Webster definition of a sommelier, or do you want the definition of what I believe a sommelier should be? <laughs> well, if you go by the definition of Merriam-Webster, it's basically a, a wine waiter or a person that's going to essentially assist you with making a selection of a wine to uh, help enhance a food uh, and something like this at a restaurant. It's more based on service only. Uh, but where I'm in Rome, the idea of a sommelier is actually much more enhanced, which is quite beautiful, where I'm at Rimes Rosholi. You know, we essentially are a guide to our guests. We are not there to stand above them, speak down to them. We're there to help them. So uh, beyond just wine and food pairing and helping to make a selection, we really want to guide that guest to experience the wine as if they were in the vineyard. So often we're showing even a video of the vineyard and the winemaker. Um, we're really, we're just really trying to connect them. You know, sometimes these winemakers we go see are, are complete characters. So we want their personality to come out in the glass that they're drinking. And of course, yes, we are in Italy and wine and food is considered one experience. It's not, I pick the wine that I would like to drink and I'll pick the food that I would like to eat and just see what happens. We consider it one experience. So yes, it is also important, of course, to pick a wine that will complement the food. How does wine complement food? What what are the qualities that make you put things together? Well, certainly, uh, let's talk even about something even before this. So please, before you ever go to have a nice restaurant experience, try not to have drank a glass of Coca-Cola before you go. Because if your palate uh, is essentially too sweet, you're going to sense things to be too bitter. Whereas a, a typical wine that maybe someone else would perceive as completely normal, you're going to say, gosh, I don't like the taste of this. That's why, of course, you also wouldn't want to brush your teeth before you go to a wine tasting. It's the same concept with food. So anything else that's kind of happening on your palate at that same time can affect an experience. Uh, for example, uh, you know, a classic pairing, I guess you could say, in the U.S. that people do is, is steak and Cabernet. And it's because the steak has the you know has that nice meaty juicy texture and that's what also helps proteins in the meats help to soften what are called tannins in wine tannins are that kind of sandpaper feel that you'll notice that dry astringent uh, component to a wine that dry 
component is not so pleasurable on its own, but when you have that nice meaty, juicy steak, it helps to soften those tannins. Uh, same thing with cheese and wine. There's a lot of proteins in aged cheeses, which helps to soften those tannins. Uh, sometimes you'll want acidity to kind of uh, lighten up the palate as well to kind of keep your palate nice and refreshed. If you're eating fattier foods, it keeps you wanting to kind of keep having that bite of food and swallow it down with a nice sip of nice acidic wine that just kind of cleans the palate. So you were telling me about the experience you create for your guests. T tell me more about that. And also that your concept of the everyone can be a sommelier. <laughs> yes. So basically, when I'm a sommelier, I'm hosting wine tastings for usually a group of people, travelers from all around the world. I have people that know wine comes in red or white, and I sometimes will have a master sommelier at a table. So <laughs> I have to be able to make this an enjoyable experience for everyone. At the end of the day, they're on vacation. They're not there to get a lecture. They don't need to learn about you know the technical details of winemaking. They want an experience. And so what I try to do is guide them but also get out of the way. So give them the, you know, a couple of little tricks and tips to enjoy the wine, but then also to not tell them what they're experiencing and let them have their own experience and almost bring it back to us and, and tell me what I, what, tell me what they're experiencing. So uh, in, initially we'll kind of start with looking at the wine, smelling the wine and, and doing all of this. But one immediate important thing I tell everybody is that smell is linked with memories. You, we all have different memories and all of our memories are personal and innate to us. And so it would be completely wrong of me to ever tell someone when they say, you know, I smell pear in this wine. And I say, that's, that's wrong. There's no pear in this wine. <laughs> in, in, in a way that's wrong. Sometimes it might be wrong, but, <laughs> but in general, I can't tell them they're wrong because maybe they have a specific, maybe they were eating pear inside of another dish and that dish had something that the wine smells like, but their memory of that is of pear. And so I just want everyone to understand that when you describe a wine as a memory, it's yours. I'll, no one can tell you you're wrong. So I try to make sure immediately I take that pressure for them to say the correct thing off of, off of the table so that they can just learn to express themselves in the way that they express it. And by the time you know they start to socialize after wine three, everyone starts to kind of uh, speak around the table a bit more, open up a little bit more. The, the worry and the nervousness goes away of being correct. And by wine five, we actually do a, a game, a little prize giveaway, where uh, it's an incredible wine. It's called Schiopettino. And it has this incredible, incredible nose. It brings people, and we tell them though, you have to describe the wine as a memory or describe it as whatever you smell. But in general, try to work from your memories because you'll be the most accurate. Because we actually even found this. When we have, uh, actually at a table, who do you think would be the best person who's gonna be uh, you know, at describing a wine? A master sommelier or someone new to wine? Or better yet, a seven-year-old who's there with their oh, parents. Would you oh, <laughs> tell me about the seven-year-old. Always the seven-year-old that is the best because you know what? They just go off their natural instincts. They go off their gut of what it reminds them of. And it's the most eloquent and natural expression. Instead of using the wheel that UC Davis gives you of the set aromas that would be in wines, <laughs> which gets so exhausting for us, <laughs> you know, to constantly be repeating these things over and over. So anyways, it's actually more fun when we have a child who's smelling their parents' wine. And this brings me, it reminds me of when I'm at grandma's house and she's preparing an apple pie and we're eating it with whipped cream and ice cream and vanilla ice cream on the side of it. So, and that's exactly what the wine smells like. So anyways, that's what we always encourage, but it's fun to watch by wine five, how incredible our guests are at just describing the wine 
when they describe it. That's why we say everyone can be a sommelier. I mean, a sommelier technically is going to be a person who's involved in service. So understanding the correct order of who to serve, serving the women first and serving the men after. If someone's celebrating, you serve them first and then the others. But the average person is not studying to be a sommelier to work in a Michelin star restaurant. They're just passionate about wine and they're just curious. So to me, there's a whole different route you can take when you are passionate about wine that allows anybody to be a sommelier. I love that concept that of letting the people bring out their own creativity and not <laughs> the top-down approach. So tell me how you learned about wine and what fascinated you. Well, this is going to be a <laughs> long... My wine story has been one of probably over, what, 20 years now. I shouldn't say it because that makes me 19 years old and that makes me illegal to be drinking in the U.S. <laughs> but let's say I did study abroad in London when I was 19 years old. I was already becoming passionate about wine. I'm not sure. My mother always was drinking champagne and somehow this probably transmuted into me as this is the beverage that, that we drink. She never drank a beer and nor did I. Uh, so when I studied abroad in London, it was actually the first time I got exposed to European wines, French wines, Spanish wines, things like this. Of course, Spanish wines, actually, we have quite a bit in U.S., but French wines, that was the first time. And this was where I started to have a love affair with wine. I remember tasting Viognier and Sancerre, and then Sancerre, you don't know, is it a place? Is it a grape? So you start looking it up and you find that, you know, it's a place and this is the grape that the Sauvignon Blanc is the grape that's involved with it. And it just starts to make you really, really curious about uh, geography and all these things. So eventually I go back home uh, to the U.S. and I read Wine for Dummies because when you're 20 years old, that's an actually a very informative and educational book. And I started just becoming passionate organically, uh, reading about it, reading wine and food pairing books. Uh, and of course, living in Michigan where I grew up, there's really no way to work in wine. So when I graduated college, I remember thinking, hey, maybe I can work in wine, but the only job opportunities were with Gallo. And I knew not to sell myself out to <laughs> working for EJ Gallo. So it just kind of stayed as a passion of mine. And eventually I ended up, when I was, I think, 24, I went to Napa Valley for the first time and fell in love again once you're there. And actually Napa is not my favorite place, but Sonoma. Mm -hmm. Sonoma to mm -hmm. me is magical because you have the coast, you have more rolling hills, you have more artisan producers. Uh, and it was really, again, a kind of a starting to really shape me. And eventually uh, I moved to California and I was in LA at first and I had to switch franchises for who I was working with. And I moved up to Santa Barbara and I had no idea that Santa Barbara had such a huge wine country. I assumed uh, you had to go as far north as Napa to really experience a big, big, big region for winemaking in California. And there I started, uh, well, I started working in a wine bar um, called Wine Plus Beer, where we had about, I don't know, 30 wines by the glass. And the beautiful thing is when uh, I started studying for the Court of Master Sommeliers, I met a guy named Brian McClintock, which some people will know the name from. He's one of the people, the uh, Psalms in uh, in the movie called Psalm, the documentary, uh, who passes and gets his Master Sommelier. And I met him there. He actually had opened up a wine bar called Les Marchands. And from just constantly going there because he had a beautiful curated wine list of European and old world wines. Uh, he said, Lindsay, you know things, why don't you start studying more formally? And anyone who's passionate about wine would assume that the next step is to get more knowledge and you'll get more knowledge by becoming a sommelier. So I took the level one course in Santa Barbara for a court of master sommeliers and I passed it and I started studying immediately for the level two course. And I have to say the level one course, I would suggest almost to anybody. It's a really beautiful foundation of knowledge. And in fact, in the level one course, you actually do taste 24 wines from all over the world. And you discuss them, you go through a, a pretty rigorous 
process, which is quite annoying to like, let's say my mom who used to roll her eyes when I would talk about the medium plus acidity in a wine and uh, you know, the level of tannins and the legs in the wine and what this <laughs> meant was a medium viscosity. And you know, I just saw her, her eyes just rolling back in her head. But anyways, you, you study these wines and all the regions of, of the world, of the world more or less kind of generically and simply. And it's a, it's a beautiful base to have. But by the time I started studying for level two, I realized that you don't taste any wines. You actually have to taste them on your own. You have to buy them or find a study group. And it's basically just reading a book and re you go and take a test. There is no class. There is no, uh, there's no group to be involved in to learn together with. It's just, here's your book, go find your own wines and come back and take the test when you're ready. And to me, without even thinking about it, I started to feel a complete disconnect between this. They make you learn the 33 different Grand Cru's of Burgundy, yet you don't have to taste them. And you need to learn all the soil types of these regions, but memorization, you know, of all these regions is not so easy. So at some point I had won a bonus that had to be used at my job for travel. And I decided I needed to go to Europe and to study wine in a way that way, to just go to vineyards. So I went on a solo trip uh, for 10 weeks to Spain, France, and Italy, going through the major vineyard regions. And the beautiful thing is when you care about wine, you have a compass in life. You already know where to go. You don't have to figure out what am I going to do in this city? What am I going to do in this region? You know exactly where to go. So I had an incredible, incredible, that's where I really started to learn more about wine is when I became more connected to it uh, that way. Well, I was just thinking that you not only have a, a compass and a place of where to go, you have the conversation to, to have with, with the people, that uh, you have a way of, of making friends and community. Yeah, and one thing I will say that having now spent five years, six years in Italy, the questions that I would have asked in the U.S. when I went to visit wineries are completely different from the questions I would ask now when I go to visit wineries. And this is something that I think has really, really, really connected to me to wine more and more since I've been here in Italy. Because in the US, when you start studying for wine, you're learning about yeast and barrels and malolactic fermentation and things that nobody in general really gets moved by, let's be honest. <laughs> no poet has ever written about the malolactic fermentation <laughs> in a wine. So, you know, you would go in and you'd hear it. You'd hear other sommeliers do it. You'd hear other wine colleagues go into a winery and say, how many months has this wine spent in oak? And what is it? What percentage of new oak versus uh, used oak? None, this is what I would have asked when I went into a winery to learn about wine when I was in the U.S. When you go to Italy... That's the last thing that they want to talk about <laughs> when you're visiting with them. They want to tell you about the history. They want to tell you about the region. They want to tell you about their personal story, how they got involved, how their grandfather's grandfather was involved in winemaking and the challenges he faced and what they're saving today from you know, his traditions and his past. So I've completely scrapped the idea that you really need to continue studying with a sommelier course to become more involved, more moved, more passionate about wine. We'll have more about how Lindsay came to Rome and never left after the break. Okay, so you you said that you came to Rome and never left. <laughs> so tell me that part of the story. Well, so eventually I went from Spain through France and into Italy, and I made my way down to Rome. When I was staying in Rome, I stayed in Trastevere, and I decided instead of going to a new place every single night, because I had started to realize from those 10 weeks that the best relationships I was making was when I got stuck places. And actually, because there were actually moments I got completely stuck in a city and couldn't get out. 
And the friendships and the long lasting, you know, relationships I was making was when I was kind of stuck and I didn't go to multiple, multiple places and keep trying to touch and go, touch and go. So I met a guy who was a master sommelier in Trastevere. He had lived in uh, California for 30 years and in Rome for 30 years. And we kind of just started talking. He said, okay, if you haven't, if you don't know about Rosholi, you absolutely have to know about Rosholi. And I wasn't really studying food and Rosholi is more known for their Roman uh, cuisine, also for their cellar. We have something like 60,000 bottles in our cellar, probably one of the most curated wine lists in Rome, if not the most. And so he took me for a lunch there and I left pretty much needing a wheelchair after a five hour lunch and drinking and eating like a uh, empress. <laughs> and I went home and I started looking up Rosholi and what they were all about. And then I realized the next day that they did wine tasting. And I said, well, this is more up my alley. So I went to what is called Rimes Rosholi, which I am now uh, one of the part owners of. And Alessandro was hosting this tasting. And I remember walking in the door and it was this U-shaped table and everyone, all the guests are you know, waiting for him to start, but they're, they're kind of quiet and maybe one or two are talking, but there's kind of this silence. And then he comes up in the center of this U-shaped table and it's basically his stage. You know, he's, uh speaks English perfectly. He's, but, you know, he's been speaking it for about 35 years. Uh, he came from a past of documentary making, filmmaking, uh, a bit of stand-up comedy. He had opened up wine bars in Dublin. His mother's an anthropologist. His father's a philosopher. And he just lights up the entire room. And I just, for the first time, experienced wine as a mind-opening experience instead of kind of a closing and classifying experience. Instead of reducing wine to whether it's white or red or tannic or non-tannic or made with selected yeast or not with selected yeast and how much time it spends in barrels and turning it into this object that we just kind of sit there and dissect. Wine opened my mind. He, I should say, as even a sommelier, opened my mind. So I'm indebted to him in a way forever for what he's kind of taught me. That's where I really, I think, have learned everything was working and being under kind of his guidance at Remesa Rosholi. But there's a twist to that story, of course. So we ended up, I ended up staying, I think, that night at Remesa Rosholi with a couple other guests till two in the morning. <laughs> and we were talking about everything from politics to travel to you name it. And the next day I ended up seeing Alessandro and we ended up staying in contact. And eventually I had to leave. I, you only get three months when you're in the EU before you have to come home with a tourist visa. So I remember just kind of bawling having to leave Europe, but I had to go home and we stayed in touch. And after about a month and a half, I decided to surprise him and not tell him I was coming back. And I showed up at a champagne tasting that he was hosting. I, I shouldn't tell you it was about 700 euros per person. And <laughs> I showed up and surprised him with unbeknownst to telling him that I was coming back to Italy. So he's not convinced if I came back for him or the champagne, but... <laughs> If I wanted to, <laughs> I had the plane ticket that I spent to get over to him. I could have bought a few bottles of champagne back home myself. So anyways, it was for sure for him. And we're still together five, uh, six years later now. And he's the main founder of Remesa Rosholi. But now there are four of us that are also part owners. Wow. That's wonderful. I love it. And you must have been pretty impressive to have somebody that you admire that much take notice of you as well. So, Well, thank you. When we were sp speaking before you, you talked about how wine led you to discover history and philosophy and, and stuff. Tell me more about that. Well, yeah. So basically, you know, since I decided to leave the uh, Court of Master Sommeliers after level one, and I actually started studying for the WSET level three, which I placed into when I came here. 
But being that it was 1,500 euros, he said, what's the point? You're tasting all these wines here. We, we do hundreds of tastings uh, during the year, some of them quite, quite high end. So he said, leave that behind. And, but I still wanted to, I was still curious about wine. I still wanted to learn about it. But I started reading books more about history of wine, uh, you know, wine and war. So understanding how the French, all their tactics, what they were doing to uh, kind of hide wine from the Nazis who were coming. I mean, Hitler had a cellar mm -hmm. of like 1.5 million bottles of wine at one point. So they were burying it. They were building like the Tour d'Argent built a concrete wall to hide about a third of their their best wines so that when the Nazis came, they could pretend like, oh, yeah, here's our cellar. But it was really technically only two thirds of it. Uh, I started you know, reading all these other books. And I never really cared so much about, I mean, the concept of history for me history for the average American, you know, a lot of times starts with the birth of, of America. And that's kind of it, you know, it goes back a few hundred years for us. If we even know anything about our own history, it's sometimes surprising. Uh, sometimes I feel like <laughs> more people know about our, more about our history than we, we do ourselves. And I was certainly not a history buff. Uh, but wine, when you start to let wine be the weaver and wine kind of being the vehicle to all of these different things, you know, like I was saying before, I never certain places in geography it's they're hard to place but until you start studying wine of course you naturally go back to the origins of things and you realize okay wow wine goes back eight thousand years or so probably you know the most agreed upon place where it was started is georgia but you know the first time i ever remember reading about georgia i you know i think the only georgia i know is the u.s state of georgia <laughs> i didn't even know i couldn't place it on a map uh when i back when i was what 20 years old and you start to so you do naturally and very organically you start to care about things when you have a the passion kind of linked with it, with wine. So wine has kind of just been that underlying thing that's brought me into reading about art and reading about history and reading about uh, environmental issues and and all of that. It's, it's just happened very organically. I've been here five years and now I'm reading, you know, The Birth of Tragedy by Nietzsche and learning all about Apollo and Dionysus. And I'm realizing my, you know, I have too much Apollo in my world and I need more Dionysus in my world and all this foolishness and wildness and passion. And uh, these are all where all the you know origins of my problems are. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, it's really just it's just happened naturally. But to me, that's the meaningful side of of what wine brings can bring out in your life. I mean, my mom doesn't care about the malolactic fermentation, but if I talk about something else with maybe something I've learned from history or philosophy or I don't know from an artist, that might be something that's more exciting for her than than the technical aspect of it. What would be a good goal for somebody, just be somebody, a beginner or somebody who has um, been tasting wine for, for a few years? What are, what are some things that one could strive for? You know, if you're new to wine, in general, you're, you're looking for a compass. You're looking for someone often to tell you what you should like. This is the opposite. If you can learn to approach it in the opposite way, I think you'll do yourself a huge favor. You'll save yourself money, first of all, when you don't follow points. So assuming that a 96-point wine is going to be good, in your terms of good, is a quick way to waste a lot of money and not necessarily be happy at the end of the day. Uh, the other thing, too, some people assume if they're not necessarily well studied even some of the sommeliers who have studied a lot assume maybe uh, that a DOCG wine is going to be better than a DOC wine and so you start to look at things as hierarchies mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it should be known that Sassicaia which is one of our most expensive wines here in Italy started off as a vino da tavola so a wine with no 
demarcation for exactly you know what it was in terms of a classified wine with Italy. So kind of taking all of that, those preconceived ideas and stripping them away and kind of letting it happen organically. Of course, the more you can let it involve all of your senses, the more you'll, I think, have a better experience with the wine. Slow down, you know, look at the wine, smell the wine, taste the wine, do everything slow as you can with wine. Wine is not about, you know, doing shots of vodka, of course. So have people around, share, talk about wine together, share your, you know, share your experience with, with other people that are, you know, sharing the same bottle. Just start to develop your own vocabulary. It doesn't have to be a sommelier's vocabulary, but start to develop, you know, your own way to speak about wine. Or better yet, do it like the symposium days. So don't even speak about wine. <laughs> but know also that price is not going to necessarily be a guarantee for, for quality. In, in general, yes, sometimes when you start to speak of, you know, more complexity than wine usually will mean that the wine ultimately will cost more. Burgundian wines can be, you know, aged really beautifully, but get there, get there as you get there. Don't feel that it's a, there's a start or a finish line with wine. Wine is the journey. How do you choose things to, to try if there's not somebody saying, here's a starting point? I think the best thing you can actually do in the beginning is ask go to somewhere where someone can help you get out of the supermarket and where it's all based on what the look of a label is go beyond the label because the average person buys a wine because of price and a label it's a there's a funny character on the front of it or a cute design or something like this and we just buy it because whatever it's the one that jumps out at us but go to a wine shop where someone can actually give you a little bit of knowledge and then once they do give you a little bit of knowledge do a little bit just start to get your feet wet Research the winery, research where the wine comes from, figure out which grape it is, figure out what the soils are. If you can watch a video of, you know, we do videos for all of our, our wine club members. They get a video of the winemaker with their wine because we want them to see the winemaker, see where, see, hear their story. So start to get a bit more emotionally involved with the wine. And usually the best way to do that is to go to a vineyard if you can uh, physically be standing there on the vineyard. But of course, if you don't live in a wine region, uh, or you're not blessed to live in Italy like we are, then uh, you you know you can do the next best thing, which is try just to get as close to the vineyard as possible through videos or watching and learning in whichever way you can. Is it describable in a simple way for this podcast the differences between France and Spain and California and Italy? <laughs> My answer will be try not to worry about classifying. There's, you know, this, to me, where wine started to go in the wrong direction. I mean, if you look back to, if I, you know, in reading about all these poets and all the art that's involved with wine, I mean, obviously a lot of Italian poets write about wine. So, you know, wine has a way to move people. It has, there's something deeper. There's a much, much more important element to me than worrying about classifying it as this tastes like a Spanish wine, this tastes like an Italian wine. Yes, there's a fun element to when you're with your friends to be able to, you know, guess where a wine is from. Of course, that's it's fun to have competitions and these kind of things. And we've turned that, wine's turned into that. But don't worry so much about classifying. The other thing we're running into the problem now too is that people used to classify old world wines and new world wines. And those kind of had their distinct styles. But now with 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 the globalization of the world, with climate change, with all the other things that are happening, you'll find plenty more quote unquote new world style wines in 
Italy and in old world places, <laughs> and even winemakers that are making quote unquote old style wines. I hate to even kind of classify them that way, but you know, just for the sake of argument here, in a new world region. So, which you know, generally old world wines have a little bit higher acidity, a little bit lower alcohol, and these things. But I think we're starting to re like run into a problem where we're we're trying to always classify things, and there's really no need anymore. Otherwise, you just end up, I think, taking wine and making reducing it and 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 trying to put it into a box and and fit it into something. Hmm. And like I said, it's fun every once in a while to guess, but I don't think that's the the main heart of what wine is all about. It's not a competition. So tell me about the Rosholi Wine Club. Wow, the Rosholi Wine Club to me is the synthesis of the incredible mind that Alessandro has. I mean, he is like the Elon Musk of wine. Uh, it's a synthesis of everything that we want to be doing in life rolled into, you know, unfortunately we have to use the words wine club, but we're so much more than the average wine club. You know, the average wine club is about a box of wine showing up on your doorstep at inter you know various intervals throughout the year. Maybe there's a PDF uh, or a recipe card on the inside and that's your experience or an algorithm selects for you what you're going to like, which there is nothing more <laughs> intimate and more personal than taste. So to each their own, but uh, we don't use any algorithms. <laughs> Our goal was to, my gosh, how do I even synthesize Rosholi Wine Club? Well, the, the simple gist of it is that, of course, there are 24 wines uh, coming from artisans who, of course, are working organically and very sin sincerely and honestly in the vineyards. Uh, so we 24, they'll come from all over Italy. We have different levels for, you know, everyday wine lovers through collectors and connoisseurs because Rosholi does service quite a big uh, various level of, of wine lovers, passionates, enthusiasts and such. But we decided from the very beginning, Alessandro said, I want them because people wanted to continue their Remessa Scholli experience, mm -hmm. the wine tasting that I experienced that ultimately made me come back to Rome. Uh, they wanted to experience this at home. So we thought, how do we get them as close to Italy as possible? So the very, very first thing we ever did, which we were the first ones and now more and more people are starting to do it, but was include a video of the winemaker. And when we take a video of the winemaker, it's about them because we think that their story should be, they should be the protagonist on the stage. You know, sommeliers, you know, I feel like if it's like we're playing a game of telephone where things start to get lost in translation when we start to get into it and our egos get involved in it. You know, do we start to lose what's the important part of the wine? And so that's the, the most important part is that the winemaker's story and it is heard from their point of view. Then this uh, past um, April now, we are officially putting QR codes on each of the bottles. So now with just literally a scan of your phone, you have access to that video immediately. Most of the winemakers are speaking in Italian, so it's also a language course because we put Italian or the English subtitles as well in the videos. And you'll also be able to know the grape, the region, the pairings, when to drink it by. So just literally with a scan of a phone. Uh, of course, everyone has a free tasting when they come to Rome because we want you to experience what I experienced and what changed my life about wine so that this is something that you can ultimately take home and share with your friends. Uh, but th the goal was to really create a community around our, an actual wine club. So our sommeliers uh, are always available to answer any pairing questions. We have we opened up a community a year ago when COVID hit uh, to bring together wine lovers, wine passionates, winemakers, sommeliers, journalists, everybody who's interested and passionate about wine into one hub. It's called community.wine at the moment, but we'll actually have an app coming out in probably around May 2021. The, it will be called the Rosholi Wine Community. And inside the app, you'll have 
you know, ways to learn more about wine. You'll have a sommelier who's there to answer any questions, winemakers that can answer any questions you have. We want people to understand that there's not necessarily a hierarchy with wine. We want people to be able to feel comfortable to ask questions to someone that they might consider, you know, being higher up, but we're all at the same level. We're, at the end of the day, we're talking about wine. <laughs> it's a fruit juice with alcohol for, <laughs> for anyone who hasn't <laughs> realized this yet. And um, what about resources for people who want to learn more? Get as close to wine as you possibly can in whatever way that means. Ideally, you know, if we have to put precedence to it, try to go to vineyards, try to go experience wine directly where it comes from. Wine will never taste better than when it, you're drinking it literally in the vineyard or in the cellar with the winemaker. That's going to be probably your best experience you'll ever have with it. If you're in Rome, you can, of course, come to Rimesa Rosoli and do our wine and food tasting dinner, which is a beautiful, a beautiful, fun night for any levels. Everyone leaves having fun there. Uh, you know, everyone's talking from all sorts of different countries about where they've been, where they're going. People are making friends with each other. Uh, Rosoli, of course, if you're really into food, Rosoli's uh, the cuisine, the Roman cuisine there is incredible. And then for people who can't maybe come to Italy, of course, there is the Rosoli Wine Club. We have a YouTube channel full of uh, videos that people can start to watch and learn about wine from the winemaker themselves. If I had to suggest books, I would probably suggest, you know, starting with learning just about the general history of wine, starting to place wine in centuries and how it's evolved and how it's changed. Because you'll learn a lot about politics, you'll learn about art, you'll learn about history, you'll learn about everything that way, geography. And that's more what the average winemaker, at least in Italy, wants to be speaking about, not necessarily about the barrels and the tannins and all this. I think a beautiful way also for people to who are passionate about wine and want a little next level step is to take a level one course. You know, if, if you're not already a sommelier or an already, you know, more of an expert, take the level one course because there's a beautiful foundation of information there that uh, that you can learn. But you can also find so many books online. Uh, Hugh Johnson wrote a great book uh, about the history of wine. Jancis Robinson has a lot of great material out there. There's, if you just Google wine and books, there's a, there's infinity <laughs> there for it. It's all available okay. for free and all available, uh, you know, for anybody to, to access. How do you find your winemakers? So we really have a variety of ways. They sometimes, but in general, our philosophy is artisan winemakers. Usually they're 20, 30,000 bottles per year. For the, for the wine club, ideally, they're bottles that people can't find in uh, abroad and outside of Italy, so limited production. And the other thing we do for the wine club, actually, is we try to find winemakers who are maybe wanting, they're interested in doing something, but they're scared to do it, or they're afraid that the market will react uh, negatively, or they're just not used to it, or they're not ready for this particular concept. And we say, you know what, we'll buy it all. We'll buy your entire, whatever, thousand bottles for our wine club members. And we'll, let's risk. Let's just see what happens. And the two we've had, three we've done so far, have been some of our best wines, our top selling wines uh, that we've ever done. So, Wow. This makes me very excited and want to learn more. Anything you'd like to say in conclusion? I guess the best way for me to conclude after all of this is, you know, if you're passionate about wine, if you are curious about wine, don't think that there's only one path, you know, that the end result is you need to be a master sommelier at the end of all of this. There are so many different, the entire wine is a journey. 
and it's a beautiful journey when you involve some of the more meaningful parts of life in it. So my, my suggestion is to not worry so much that you have to be right with wine, that, that it's something that's above you, that there's uh, like a rites of you know, passage that you have to clear to get through to enjoy the next part of it. You can enjoy a sunset without being able to say anything about it. You can appreciate a wine without being able to describe anything about it. So this isn't to say that a master sommelier has not done an incredible thing. And I don't want to say that, uh, you know, all of what their work, their hard work should be canceled. But just know that not everyone has to go down that path to, uh, to enjoy wine. That's wonderful. Thank you. My thanks to Lindsay Gabbard. You can find out more about her and the Rosholi Wine Club in the show notes. I invite everyone to write and tell me what you've always wanted to try. I'm Liz Sumner, reminding you to be bold, and thanks for listening.